0: Good morning. Our scripture for today is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 1 to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I have away all I have, and if I delivered up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patience and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice or wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends as for prophecies that they will pass away. As for times they will cease, as for knowledge, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. This tree, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Kevin's for microphones, and especially
1: these types. Oh, technical difficulties. Anyhow, thank you so much, Rosalina, for, for reading that passage. Several months ago, um, Alan asked if I would be willing to do the Sunday service and I'm like, uh eh, don't really know because although I'm a chaplain like Marianne and John, I'm not in my mind at least a preacher just not, absolutely not. And you know back to your story Darlene I have another perspective, too, of that morning. I remember having been up all night with my son, Brian, teething. And we had had, Amber and I had had a conversation, and she was going to come to church. And in the morning, there were lots of four-letter words being spoken, both at home and in the car. And I said, you know, you don't have to sing, just sit there and be quiet, you know? And one of the people from the praise team said to Amber, would you like to come up and sing with us? And this is during their practice. And she kind of comes to me and she says, I'm not so sure, Karen. I'll go up and sing, but I'm not staying. You're going to take me home. And I said, we'll see about that. And then she finishes singing and she comes to sit down with me, she says, I like that, but they better not ask me to sing with them during worship. Well, wouldn't you know it, not five minutes later, at the back of the church, somebody, and I almost think it was Natalie, I'm not quite sure, somebody came up to her and said, you know, you really have a good voice. Really good advice. Do you want to sing with us in church? Okay. Her response was so quick, so quick, and up she came. And then I got the joy of calling Steve and Darlene. And yes, I had to do it a couple of times. And Darlene finally answered, us, "Hello, hello," and I said, "Darlene, you and Steve have to." leave the bedside Baptist church, as we used to call it in Stony Creek. You have to leave the bedside Baptist church and come to church this morning because your daughter is singing. Oh, okay. And they came. And there is nothing that has brought me more joy in the time that I have been here than to see Amber come and then to see the rest of my family come. You have no idea how much they are a treasure to me. They have been a joy. They have been a source of strength. And even last weekend when I came to church, um, Skylar came and hugged me. She has no idea just how much that hug does for me. You see, I never ever thought or expected myself to be a minister. My dad is now 86 years old. And he reminds me, so, you're not a minister, are you? You're not a chaplain, are you? And I go, Dad, be quiet. Be quiet. When I think of a minister, I often think of Alan, or I think of all the ministers I have known throughout my life. They were larger than life for me. They seem so brilliant. How could somebody on a weekly basis come up with a sermon? Could never figure that one out. And how could they know what God knows of us? Again, I could never know. I do remember as a little girl feeling special up until about the age of five. I was special to my parents, I was special to my sister, but sometime after the age of five I didn't seem special anymore. And I used to go to church when I was little, I used to sit in the nursery and I remember being in Sunday school and I remember my mom taking me to Sunday school the first time and the teacher asking me, what's your name? And I'd say, it's Peanut, proud as anything, it's Peanut. And my mom's going, no, 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 Karen, what's your name? And I'd say, it's Peanut. And it took me probably a good three or four months before I responded to anything other than Peanut, which drove that teacher nuts. And on Sunday, as I learned, kids were nice to me but they happened to be the same kids I went to school with. And who the kids were on Sunday morning was quite different to what they were during the school week. And that brings me to another point. My parents quit going to church. My dad, when he was 14 years old, well, maybe 16, his brother was 14. And the reason he quit going to church was because of the fact that his parents decided to go to the United States, and it was during the Vietnam War. And my father and my uncle did not want to get stuck going to war. So they had to stay here in Canada in Woodstock and fend for themselves. And the church that they had been so heavily involved with over the years forgot about them. When I was a little kid, I loved my church that we went to. It was a United Church in Grimsby. Loved it. Loved Mrs. Seabee. She used to do our children's choir. Amazing lady. Then there was Reverend McLaughlin. Dear sweet old fella, or so I thought. And one day, this little redhead had a question to ask him. Do you ever get ladies in the pulpit? Well, I found out quite quickly that no, women don't belong in the pulpit. And I knew never dare ask that man another question in all my life because I knew I would get a tongue lashing. So from that point on, I always thought that no, women can't be ministers. In school, people didn't realize that I had a learning challenge. They didn't realize that I couldn't see properly for one, that I actually only use one eye. They didn't understand that when I would read a book, this eye would read part of that page without my knowing, so all my words would get jumbled up, and nothing would make sense. And kids used to ridicule me. They used to bully me. And it didn't help that back in the 60s and early 70s that teachers, would also ridicule. I remember Mrs. Richmond saying to the class, if you don't understand anything, if you don't understand something, come and talk to me. I would gather up all my courage and go talk to her. And she would sit there, and it sounded like her voice was booming. Are you so stupid? Are you so retarded that you can't figure this out? Go back to your desk and figure it out. Don't come back to me. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my parents. My parents taught me how to read, how to write, to write sentences that were legible. But every teacher up until grade four treated me as though I was somebody who was stupid. What that does to a child is profound when they don't feel as though they're special. I knew at home I was safe with my parents, but I wasn't safe outside. I no longer even felt safe going to stay with my grandparents or my Oma, and I loved them dearly, because I wasn't like my sister, Heather. And I wasn't like Patricia, my cousin, or Rennie, my cousin. There was something wrong with me, and if I would just pull up my bootstraps, I would be good. If I would only study harder, I would be smart. What they didn't realize is the more I studied, the less I could remember. I remember spending two hours on our steps at home. And this was in kindergarten, of all things. And we had to remember, and I'm sure most of you will remember, you had to know your name, your parents' name, your address, your telephone number. That's it. It's all you needed to know in case you got lost or separated. Oh, I could do that. My name is Karen Ann Fox. I live at 45 Roseville Street, Grimsby, Ontario. My phone number is 945. Eight, one, and the number would fall over. My dad would start me all over again. Okay, got it this time. My name is Karen Ann Fox. My parents are Brian and Margaret. I live at 45 Rosedale Street, Grimsby, Ontario. My phone number is 945. And then it'd be gone. And it would get to the point where I couldn't even remember the street I was living on. I knew where I lived. I just couldn't tell you. When we were at school and we had to do speeches, I would be there and I'd get up and my knees would be knocking, I would be shaking. And I would start. And then I would fumble, and I would look at my notes, and of course, because my eyes don't work properly, I would get worse, and I'd finally be told to sit down while the kids are laughing at me, and the teachers, and saying, don't be so foolish. It wasn't till grade four that I had two remarkable teachers. And I so wish I could meet up with them today, Mr. Ferris and Mr. Emerson. They said to me, they said to my parents, Karen has learning challenges, but she can learn. She's different than the other kids, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't have gifts and abilities. And they worked with my parents. They worked with me that year. And I realized that I was smart, that I did know how to read properly. I did know how to do math. And I did know how to do some sciences. I just needed help in being able to construct sentences. And I knew how to belong, not to the in-group, because I never belonged in the in-group. I was a freak. At school, I went to a seven-room schoolhouse in Grimsby. And in that seven-room schoolhouse, everybody's hair was either dark brown or blonde. And what am I? A redhead with freckles. And the only other people that had red hair was my sister and Mitchell Sherman. I can remember his name. I couldn't wait to get out of that seven-room schoolhouse. As much as I treasured it, I couldn't wait. I ended up going to a different high school because I couldn't handle the stress. And I can't imagine what young people have to deal with today with all of the technology that you have, with cell phones and with Twitter and with everything else. It's just beyond my brain to even comprehend. By that point in life, I knew God loved me. That was something that my father and mother had instilled in us, that God loved us. And they also taught us to be honest. And they taught us always to treat other people the way you would want them to treat you. And as hard as I would try and do that, people wouldn't reciprocate. And I couldn't understand why. I had all of three friends back then. There was Lynette across the street. She turned out to be a dwarf. She's four foot two. And what a heart of gold. We are still the best of friends, even though we don't see each other all the time. And we had a saying to one another that most people couldn't say. She'd say, Lynette would say to me, I look up to you with admiration. And I'd say, you know, I look down to you with the same admiration. Because for me, she may have been four feet tall, but she was a giant to me because of who she was inside. And those are the people I was drawn to people who didn't quite fit in because I didn't fit in. When I was 17 in high school, I did develop some more friends there. But when I t- went into grade 12, the summer of going into grade 12, I went and worked up a lodge up north. And I sat on a dock one day and I said, God, you know, I know you're out there. I know you're somewhere but you seem so far away. What is the meaning and purpose of my life? Because nobody likes me. I have no place. I don't belong anywhere. Wouldn't you know, two weeks to that very day, what happens to me, but I go to dive off that very same plastic dock. And just as I'm approaching the end, Because it absorbed all the heat, it was very, very hot, and you could get blisters on your feet. My left foot slipped on a bit of water. I landed headfirst at the bottom, rolled over on a rock, floated up to the top, laid there for what seemed like an eternity. Did anyone come in to get me? No, nobody came in. And I just sat there there, and said, well, God, help me, help me, help me. And somehow I managed to get to my feet. Came out of the water like this. Couldn't hold my head up. Could all only say ha, ha, ha for three hours. Did they take me to the hospital? No, they didn't. I was still expected to make beds. I did that from Tuesday till Friday, went through a whole bottle of bufferin before I went to the hospital. And I had to sneak a phone call home to my parents in order for that to happen. By the time the doctor saw me and, took and sent for my parents to bring me home, I was taken to McMaster, had six doctors look at me, look at the x-rays, shake their head, and say to my parents, you know, whatever she gets back is bonus because there's nothing we can do. She should have been put in a striker frame when the accident occurred. That year I was so sick and my friends couldn't understand what was going on with me. I couldn't understand. My whole head was a blur. If I thought my thinking was blurred when I was a kid, it was even worse then. And it took me a a good couple of years to kind of get my footing again. In one respect. The following year, my sister came home with her new son, and I had been bothered by people saying, why don't you have a boyfriend? Why aren't you with somebody? And it's like, I have enough with school, I have enough trying to, you know, just get things together. And. I ended up taking my sister to church, and I had gone through such a severe depression that year. I'd actually contemplated suicide, but I had to be practical. My parents are practical people, so I wrote a paper, and of course I couldn't do that to my parents. And I came, took my sister to church one day, and I said, God, why am I here? I don't know. But a still, small voice said, listen, just listen. And I remember I was three-quarters of the way back in this church. And I was sitting on the inside. My sister was sitting on the outside. don't know how I ever ended up on the outside of that pew, but I did. And towards the end, this woman comes down the aisle. She looks at me straight in the eye, puts her hand on my shoulder and says to me, I am so glad you came today. Holy smokes, that was like a light bulb, like a lightning bolt hit me. I couldn't believe it. I knew she was being honest, she was being genuine. And it brought me back again and again and again. And that's how I started back to church after an absence of almost eight years. I stayed at that church for probably about seven years. I even went to their Bible college, Canadian Bible college in Regina, Saskatchewan. And my dad would say to me, you know, Karen, you will never be who God wants you to be in that church. And I say, no, dad, that's not possible. I'll figure it out somewhere along the way. Karen, God is calling you to be a minister. No way. Not me. Can't be that finished Bible college, and I was expected in Bible college, there's three things you have to do when you go to Bible college. You get a boyfriend. You get your MRS degree, which most of us would think is our master's, right? No, it's your missus degree. You're supposed to marry either a pastor or a minister or a missionary. Neither one of those happened to me. Not at all. You know, and you needed to know where you were going. When I came home, for so many people, I was a failure. I was considered a failure. When I look back on it, I just shake my head. But back then, it was so profound for me. And in the midst of that, I'd also been hit in my car for my first time by a drunk driver while I was going to church on a Sunday morning. Now, how funny is that one? Totaled my parents' car had only the choice of a pole, a transport, or the car. I took the car. A few years later, after I finished Bible college, I decided, you know, I really need to learn about all these other faith traditions because in the faith tradition I was in at the time, they were so big on evangelism, and I couldn't even get my parents to come to church, for heaven's sakes. Couldn't get my neighbors, couldn't get anybody to come to church with me. Isn't that amazing? It took only 30 years to get my niece to come to church with me. Some of us are slow, okay, you know, but I couldn't do that. And I felt like such a failure, and I thought, you know, we'd even have powwows at church camp. We'd come across an Anglican group or a Presbyterian group or a Baptist group, for heaven's sakes, and we'd have to have a powwow we've got to convert these people." And I think, why do we need to convert them? Why? Our theology may be a little bit different. How we practice in church may be a little bit different, but why? And going to study world religions was one of the hardest things I had to do, but it helped me. helped me to see the The connections we have even in amongst our different faith traditions. From there, I got involved with InterVarsity. And through that, I met Dorothy and Clark Pinnock. And if any of you know Dorothy and Clark, Clark was a theology teacher at McMaster Divinity College. And God knows how only he knows how. I ever made it through Bible college and then a BA. I have no clue. Because by that point, I'd had my second car accident where somebody flying by a, higher than a kite on drugs pushed me through an intersection. And I was going to go write my German exam, and realized after that I had a fracture in my back. When I was at McMaster and I had met Dorothy and Clark and their daughter Sarah. We talked and we prayed a lot. And then I met Fallie Toledo, who was a chaplain at St. Joe's in Hamilton. She's still there more than 30 years later. What an inspiration because I had been praying, God, for all that I've been through, I don't understand why a diving accident, two car accidents, What are you doing? Punishing me. What am I going to learn from this? Because I really did feel punished. And I didn't see how or what my gifts were. I felt like I had none. Absolutely none. And then I met Fowley and I thought, oh, this could bring meaning and purpose to all I've been through. I can journey with other people who are going through difficult times. I go to tell my parents, my mother just laughs at me. She says, for somebody who hates school, what are you doing? What are you doing? My dad says, you know, I told you, you're gonna be a minister. And I said, no dad, a chaplain's different than a minister. Trust me, it's different. He goes, no, it's not. Yes, it is. Again, 86 years old, and he keeps reminding me of this truth. And I have to admit that he was right. I went to MacDiv College. How I ever sailed through MacDiv College, they accepted me on the spot. They knew where I was going to be doing my work in the pulpit. The first time I ever got into the pulpit, I had my hands wrapped around that pulpit so tight. And Dave Stevens, Reverend Dave Stevens, he said to me, "You know, what do you do in your church?" I "I do eleven things." He said, "Well, do do you do anything in the pulpit?" I go, "No." And so he says, "You're going to do the call to worship." I said, "No, I'm not." He goes, "Yes, you are." No, I'm not. Guess who won? Not me. Sunday morning, I go in, and I, the first time, I do the call to worship. "Good morning and welcome to Stony Creek Baptist Church." To which Dave stands up and he says, "Try that one again and a little louder this time, would you?" I do it, and then I'm saying, "Dave, help! I can't move! I can't move!" He said, breathe, just breathe. And from there, he had me do everything up until the sermon. And then I did my first chaplaincy unit. And by the time I was done that first chaplaincy unit, I was like, God, just shoot me. Just shoot me. I'm no good for nothing. It was like going to the army, being ripped to shreds, and being left to bleed. Done. Done. It's amazing where we can come from and where we end up. Dave Stevens had me go work with Reverend Muriel Carter, actually Reverend Muriel Spurgeon Carter. And if none of you know who she is, she was the first woman Baptist to be ordained in our tradition. What an amazing lady. And I can tell you the rest is history as far as that's concerned. Over the last 30 years that I have been a chaplain, I have had the honor and the privilege of listening to people's stories, and I can tell you that every last story I have heard has been sacred. Sacred, yet people don't realize how sacred their life is you don't realize how sacred your life is. I'm darn near 60, and it has taken up till this year for me to realize how sacred my life is. And I'm sure I'm just scratching the surface. I have walked with people through joys, through sorrows, through challenges, triumphs despair, talk about despair, and yet they have been resilient through it all. I have watched people unpack what they have been taught by well-meaning Christians trying to help with such scripture passages as all things work together for those who love God, When you're in the midst of trauma or sorrow, or you're suffering to the brink of what you can think you can tolerate, you're ready to just throw that Bible back at them and say leave. I know because I've been there many a time, having been a patient in the hospital, having been hit not two times in my car, but most recently four times in my car and having to recover and yet through all of it, it has taught me so much. As a chaplain, one man I remember being called to Humber. He wanted to be killed. He wanted euthanasia and we didn't have meat back then. He wanted the physicians to kill him. And they asked me, and I said, you know, can't quite do that. I wish I could, but I can't. Doesn't quite fit with my values and doesn't fit with the law in the country. But why don't we just sit and talk? And we talked for quite a while. And through his story, he shared with me of how He had been going to church all his life until his wife at work died because she choked to death on her lunch. He was grieving so horribly for his wife. And he went to the church. He spoke to the pastor and the pastor said, you know, you should be so grateful. Your wife is in heaven with God. He needed to hear more than you. You should not be angry. You're not allowed to be angry with God. Because you'll get into trouble with God. So that poor man, as we sat and we talked, he wanted the doctors to kill him so that God would have mercy on him because he had been holding so much guilt about the anger he had with God, and he couldn't help his anger with God. It was so painful, and I said, do you not think that an all-powerful God has the power to hold your anger, to shoulder it? God's got even broader shoulder than mine. As a father, how would you treat your child? if he says, I hate you, Dad, I hate you, and I'm sure we all can remember saying that to one of our parents somewhere along the way. And the light went on in him. I said, you know, God has love and God has mercy for you. Can you give God your anger and let him hold it just as you have allowed me to hear it and hold it? I didn't realize what a transformation that had in that man. I left and I got a coffee and I was on my way home. And I got stopped in the lobby and I thought, oh dear, what did I do? The family go, what did you do to our father? I don't know. I just talked to him, just listened. He's not the same man, he's not the same man. From there, he and I could plan out what he wanted to do with what time he had left on this earth. And he made the most of it by reconciling himself with God, by being able to be with his children in a very sacred way. That's happened time and time again over the years. I've worked at Humber, I've worked at um, William Osler, York Central and now Baycrest and even in the city of Toronto. Every life is sacred, every story is sacred. And I have sat and I've listened to stories of people and their lives and their struggles, their triumphs, their challenges, but I also know what they're doing in their lives or what they've done with their life in whatever career they have had. And it's been astounding. Amazing, some of the simplest things that they could do have such a profound effect. I have received such kindness from people here, and you don't even know it. I get periodically, and if you've ever received this, you'll know who it comes from. There's somebody in this church who periodically feels I need to be reminded of this, and they're right. There's hope, because there are days when life seems hopeless. And there are days that I don't even want to go visit another person at the hospital. And yet, it is amazing how I feel. I often feel as though I get more out of those visits than what I put in. And it all is thanks to God for what he does. No, I don't walk so well. But it's interesting. I had a patient who has Parkinson's. And when they came into the office to see me, I was sitting down. And of course, so they wouldn't know how I walk or what. And we sit and we chat and we talk about the freezing that they experience. We talk about all the different challenges they are faced with. And it's not until I get up to escort them out the door that they realize, wow. You kind of know what it's like, don't you? I said, yeah, I don't have Parkinson's, I don't have the shuffling, but I have the shuffling just from a different cause. I would never ever have thought that my old injuries or what I had been through in life could make a difference for somebody else, but it does. And I may have my days where I don't walk so well and I trip and I fall flat on my face, that's why you never see me a dress, I just don't fall gracefully. But God can use us in many ways, in spectacular ways. There are people here I know at this church who have prayed for me in some of the toughest times of my life, not just in my accident, but about, I'd say it's about 10 years ago, 13 years, they helped me through a broken family. People have prayed for me, prayed for me when my sister was dying. So what is it within your life where you feel as though your life is not sacred? because truly your life is sacred, it is sacred in the beginning, it is sacred in your lifespan, it is sacred in the end, but so often we don't realize it. So before you we have a table here and it's got a karen, it's a bowl of water with rocks in it. So for those of you who don't see your life as being sacred and need that hope. What I want you to do is, after the service, come forward and take a rock and hold it as a symbol of your life that you wish to let God be in control of and to remind you of how sacred it is for you and set it in the water and then i want you to take another rock and i want you to take it home for those times when you don't feel as though your life is sacred you don't know where your life is going and trust me even there are days when i don't feel like my life is sacred when i don't think i matter But apparently I do to God anyway, and to some other people. And I have to remind myself of that. We see in other people how they are sacred, how amazing their lives are, and yet we don't stop to think about our lives. Much of what we do each day we don't think as being special or what kindness we can show to another person what impact that can have, and yet it can have a profound effect. So I would encourage you to sit back and reflect upon your life of how sacred it is, but also in how sacred all of those people have been in your life who have brought you to where you are. I know I couldn't have done it without my parents, with people at the seminary, with people in my church. Everyone, even those who had a negative impact on my life, have been my teachers and have taught me something very profound. We spend half of our life, we come from God, we spend half of our life moving away in many regards. The second half, moving back towards. At whatever age you are, Please know that your life is special. As children, you're never too young. As adults, we're never too young or too old or too smart or not smart enough. God can use us where we are, as we are. And that's where your gifts are. They're not in speaking in tongues or being able to get up in front of people and speak. It could be by baking those loaves of bread, which the other congregation is doing to buy backpacks for children. What a profound concept, what a profound gift. For someone to receive a backpack can remind them that they are special. To receive a word of encouragement can mean the difference between life, and death and you may never know it and hopefully you will not know it to the full extent until that day when you are before God and one of the last things I want to leave you with most people think that one of the greatest gifts we have as chaplains and our role is to convert people it's not our role is to journey with you and to help you unpack not only what you've been taught, but what you believe in who you are, because that's where the answers lie, because God's spirit lives within each and every one of us. We just have to be willing to sit, be quiet, and listen, and to ponder. And maybe have someone like Darlene who you can go to and talk to someone like Mary Ann. Mary Ann was one of our first students when I came to Humber. How amazing it is to have watched her grow over the years. What an amazing gift it is to watch my students, who I now help train to become chaplains, because sometimes they can touch a patient in a way that I could never reach. Trust yourself into God's care and see what he can do for you in helping you not only help yourself but in others in some of the most simple and yet profound ways. Thank you for loving me and caring me for praying for me and supporting me as you have. I am so truly blessed. Thank you.